Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Tessa. I'm Sam. And joining us today to talk about our April books for the Momble 2023 Reading Challenge is Elise. Hi, Elise. Hi. Thanks for coming on to talk about the book that you read for April. Yes, I'm very excited. Elise, I know you've been listening to our previous book challenge episodes, so we usually start these out by kind of discussing with you what your relationship with reading is, what's your relation, what are your previous experiences with reading challenges, how's your experience with this one been so far? Prior to now, the only book challenges I've really done are like set a number of books that you want to read for the year and either complete that or don't complete that. I haven't really done challenges like this where they're themed. I've attempted, but not really succeeded at it. And I think it was because, um, like, I tried to do the Book Riot Challenge a couple years ago, and they always have, like, how, you know, different prompts. But the one thing I like about your prompt is that it's a specific prompt per month rather than here's a bunch of prompts for the whole year. It kind of keeps you on track a little better. Yeah, (laughs) that's way too vague for me. But I do like the try to read a certain amount of books a year. A few years ago, I was reading more than a book a week, but I slowed down the last couple years. Well, the the complete Momble challenge with the three sub-challenges does come out to 52 books. So you, you can... I probably... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can score a book a week <laughs> or anything. Or, or you know, whatever combination. Yeah. Or if you're like me, don't read for two weeks and then read like three books in a week. Right, but the point was, I mean, the point is for whatever you want yeah. to do, it'll work. Yeah, for sure. How has your experience with this one been so far? So I did really well in January and February. In January, I read um, Heir to the Empire, the Timothy Zahn Star Wars novel, which I'd been meaning to read for a very long time. And in February, I read Easy Riders Raging Bulls, like Matt covered when he was on your episode. March kind of fell apart for me because my sister was visiting from out of the country. And once she left, I just was really sad and just not in the mood to read so i understand that i still haven't finished my march book i'll read it eventually i mean we obviously went on hiatus so we also you know had it kind of a pause in march and funnily enough uh the person that that wrote in to update us is also still finishing off their march book lazi sent me uh his update which is he was reading the spars Sparse Holt Affair by Alan Hollinghurst. It's a story of gay upper-class English men and their families over 50 years and how society changed what was acceptable to be common and or public knowledge. Incidentally, if you think gay upper-class and English is saying the same thing three times, you'll be relieved to know that the author does as well. (laughs) So, uh, So Lassie is still working on his March book. So I think it's okay. It's all right. We can rally. It's still early in the still, year. Yeah. I, I understand that. I don't I don't feel I was feeling a little down about it and then I was like, you know what, Elise? It's not that serious. <laughs> and decided to give let myself off the hook a we little bit. We are not bit. shaming people on this uh reading challenge. We are just encouraging people to read more. Yeah, like we're just we just want people to read more. We want ourselves to read more. So it, anything is good, I think. The book I'm trying to read that was from March that might be the next book I read is called Bad Jews. I don't remember what the subtitle is. I have it on my nightstand, which is on the other side of the room. But basically, it's a history of of American Jews in politics. Oh, that's so cool. And just in history in general. And it it kind of covers... It's vague. It's not like a... It's not a super dense book. There were about 150 people interviewed for it. But it covers about 100 years. So that I felt like that was really on point for the for the prompt. I like hearing what how different people interpret the prompt. Like you all went in a very like nonfiction, like looking at specific yeah. families. And then like I went in a, a fictional direction uh, with how high we go. So, yeah, like it, it's interesting to see like 
how different people take the prompt and like, cause it's like specific enough that you have limits, like you said, but it's also vague enough to where it encompasses a lot of different things. All right. Well, tell us about the book you read for April, though. Uh, this month, we were supposed to read books by comedians because Sam decided that April is the month of comedy. Was there a reason for that, Sam? You know, toward the beginning of the month, there's a, a, a little-known, little-known, rarely celebrated ritual called April's Foolish Day, I believe is what it is. <laughs> I don't. I don't like what. what date is that? I don't like what I hear about it. I don't. Uh, I hope it doesn't catch on. <laughs> but uh, did I ever tell you I had a friend who proposed on April Fool's Day yes. in a graveyard? Like legitimately. Yeah, like legitimately. Or a joke? Like it was in a graveyard because we had a graveyard near where we went to school, right. so it wasn't like it was uncommon. Like people walk through the graveyard all the time. <laughs> But right. he was going to wait until the next day, but then got too impatient and proposed mm-hmm. to her on April Fool's Day. <laughs> that right. sounds like something I would do. De- why would you like be too impatient? Just like couldn't hold it in. <laughs> yeah, so it seems appropriate for April Fool's alone. But also, as you'll remember, the other thing about April is it is the cruelest month. So how do you fight off cruelty? With laughter. That makes complete sense to me. Or in Elise's case, a detective who will catch you (laughs) while wearing a trench coat. (laughs) Tell us about your book, Elise. (laughs) So I kind of cheated and did not read a book by a comedian, but I did read a book by someone who makes me laugh a lot. So I felt like it was I feel like the boundaries around who is a comedian and who isn't to be a little lax. I mean... Are we saying stand-up comedian or, you know, like, so I think Peter Falk totally counts. Yeah, so I read Peter Falk's book from 2006, Just One More Thing, Stories from My Life. Um, You may know Peter Falk as Columbo. He was also the grandfather telling the story in The Princess Bride for for people that love that movie. But he's been in a bunch of, um, a bunch of films. This is mostly a book of just little anecdotes from his life, um, starting from, like, his first movie and, and everything. But it's just, it's so perfect for someone like me because each chapter is literally between one page and seven pages long. So you really can just pick it up and put it down whenever you want to. It's like the candy crush of, of books. <laughs> And um, there are some really fun stories in it. Like, the way he talks is very similar to how Columbo talks, but it's just, like, he's telling these stories in this, like, grandpa observational way, and it's just, it's very amusing. So I figured instead of, there's not much to elaborate on the tone of the book, so I figured I would just give a few little anecdotes from it. Now, are the... Are they like interconnected stories or is it just like, here's a story about my life and then move on to like the next one? It's pretty much that. Um, like the there's a few chapters about Columbo like in a row. So it's it's a little chronological. It almost sounds like, you know, like sitting down and like listening to your grandpa tell stories, you know, oh, like totally. that like kind of experience yeah. where they just are like, oh, yeah. And then one time this happened. Like, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't finished it yet, but like the chapter I'm on now, he's literally like, here's some stories about my wife and like just starts telling stories about things his wife has done. So it's like very much <laughs> how you are describing it. I love that. That's great. Tell us <laughs> more. So some of my favorite bits are even the first chapter was really funny. He was in the movie um, in I think it was 1955. Um Murder, Inc., which I have not watched. I have only watched one movie he's been in since I started watching this, reading this book. I, I read, um, the, I watched the movie Mikey and Nikki with him and John Cassavetes, um, directed by Elaine May. But he was in Murder, Inc., and I don't know if it's his manager or agent or whatever, at the time was like, you should, you should campaign for an Academy Award. And he was like, campaign for an Academy Award? Like, what does that even mean? Like, president's campaign, governor's campaign 
So he was like, no, I think I think you're I think that's not something I'm going to do. And then I guess another person, maybe that at the studio or someone like a little more important, told him the same thing. So he decided to campaign for an Academy Award. He was nominated for an Academy Award for this role. I don't I'm really bad. I don't remember if it was like actor or supporting actor, mostly because I haven't seen the movie. But it doesn't matter. And then he he's at the Academy Awards. They're announcing like all the people in his category and he's he's and the winner is and he starts to get up and then they say someone else's name and he starts to sit down. <laughs> and then the next day he calls his agent and was like, you're fired. <laughs> he's just like, didn't want to give that guy money anymore <laughs> after his I mean, fair. horrible idea of. It just was very silly. Like, it was very naive, and, like, it was his first film, so I thought that was just really amusing. So does it span most of his, like, working life? Uh, like, his professional yeah, life, yes. then? Does it talk about his childhood at all, or is it just kind of about making um, movies? The only thing... No, it does talk about... Like, his dad doesn't understand at first well, that he wants to be an actor. Um, he doesn't really talk much about his life before being an actor. He makes a lot of jokes about how he had a government job and, like, got it by accidentally going into the wrong office. I get none of it makes sense. But, like, he doesn't really get too far into that. But um, his dad was like, you're going to go paint your face and act like an idiot. That's, like, his attitude towards this. And then one time when he was on a film, he was getting $500 a week, but they weren't ready for him to act in the movie yet and so he was playing golf all week so his dad didn't understand how he was getting $500 a week just to like play golf on his own yeah time. that makes sense I feel like there is a lot of like distrust of actors amongst like especially older people because they're like oh you yeah. just like play pretend for a living <laughs> like that's not a real job <laughs> so before he was in movies he did a lot of off-broadway in New York and when you're trying to get into a play, like, a director will have, like, I guess, open call, and, like, you'd come read for the director. So one time, I guess later when he was doing movies, he he met Frank Capra, and he was like, hey, do you read people? And Frank Capra, like, got really weird and was, like, not sure what was going on. And he was like, no. Like, he just answered no because he, it was, like, very obvious he didn't know what he was talking about. And then they met again a while later, and Peter was like, why were you so weird when I asked that? And Frank Capra admitted that he thought he was asking him if he read palms, like he read people's <laughs> palms. <laughs> so there's like a lot of very silly things in this book. He does get into creating the character of Columbo and how... He hated the outfit that the costume department made for him. It was just like a regular suit, but he's like, no, this guy has to have like a look that everyone's going to know that's Columbo. So he found this like raggedy jet raincoat in his closet and used that and then made the costume people dye a suit the same exact tan color as the jacket. So he just looked like rumpled. But he didn't want to have to put makeup on. He just wanted it to be like, I'm coming here, doing acting, and going home. Oh, I was going to say, I've only seen a couple episodes of Columbo. I, you've definitely seen more than I have. But, like, from what I know, like, Columbo isn't cool. Like, he should not look cool because that's not, like, yeah. his character. He's, like, very rumpled all the time. Yeah, he is. He is so wrinkled. I did. There was an episode where he was wearing a tuxedo for something, some reason, and it was very bizarre i would have been like no this is wrong i can't watch this <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he also talks about how he got different like ideas for because columbo is a is a lot different than other murder mystery shows like you know who did it at the beginning it's basically how does columbo find out so he has this one anecdote where he was at his dent a new dentist's office and they had this magazine it was like police chief something magazine and then there was an article in it about how they caught someone because they had a piece of gum at the scene that had his bite mark in it so 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 peter's like oh this is wonderful i want to do this on our show and he was like this is a new dentist like how do i get this magazine out of this dentist's office <laughs> 
and he's like debating do i do i leave and go to the bathroom put it in my pants and then go see the dentist so he ended up leaving it in the lobby and then i think he shoved it in his pants like to leave and they used that in one of the episodes it was a piece of cheese that was bitten into not gum in the episode but he used it it was like five years later and he said he wore the magazine like in his pocket the whole episode (laughs) while filming his ill-gotten goods yes um, there's a couple other, there's like two more stories I really wanted to share real quick. Not the very beginning, but a little bit later in the show, um, Columbo gets a dog and the first dog that they got was very old. So like the dog passed away after a couple years and they had to get a replacement dog, but the replacement dog was too young. So the replacement dog actually sat in the makeup chair a lot longer <laughs> than Columbo did because they had to put like clown makeup on him to make him look like gray. <laughs> That's so funny. One other thing. Um, so Peter Falk is literally obsessed with his wife, like even more than Columbo is obsessed with his wife. So that's just like a Peter Falk trait. And so he was saying that people go on Hollywood tours when they go in, when they're in California. And so sometimes there'd be like tour buses driving past their house. And one morning, his wife, Shira, I think it's his second wife. I forget what his first wife's name was. But Shira was, like, inspecting. There was, like, a piece of something in the dog's paw, and she was worried about it, it hurting him and, like, was taking it out. And the the tour guide, like, is waving. And she's, like, literally busy with the dog, like, worrying for its well-being. And the tour guide was like, how's Peter? And she was like, he died. And then, like, just kept, like, <laughs> fiddling with the dog. And I just thought that was... They, it seems like they both had such a wonderful sense of humor, the two of them, and they probably had, like, the best time ever together. So, like, what about the humor of Peter Falk attracted you to this book? Like, why were you like, this is, like, a book that I think will make me laugh? Well, I I mean, I, I as you know, I've been watching a lot of Columbo, but I just... He just, I think it's just the grandpa element. Like, I don't have any living grandparents right now or anymore. They're not going to come back. Um, and it's a zombie situation. Just, yeah. <laughs> My grandparents are all Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just felt really comforting. It's the way he tells stories is just very observational humor, which I really like. I don't know. I just. It took me a while to pick a book, and it actually took me a while to find it. I had to go to Barnes & Noble to, to get it, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, I guess. I mean, from what you've told me, it kind of sounds like he was somebody who found a lot of humor just, like, in everyday life. Like, the idea that, yeah. like, it kind of tickled him, like, these stories, which I think is a great character trait. I like to think that I live similarly. Like, I do get a lot of amusement about the things that happen around me. So maybe I just am drawn to that. You were just vibing. I gotcha. Would you, who would you recommend this to? Pretty much anyone that likes Columbo. But even if you just like Peter Falk as an actor, um, it's really good. As I said earlier, you can pick it up for like five, 10 minutes at a time if you want to. It's funny now that we are finally recording this, I'll probably finish it in like two days now. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that's how it usually goes. Yeah, I don't know much. I also just didn't know much about his life. I can't say I knew anything about his life before you read this book. Yeah, that kind of drawed me, drew me to it as well. And he was so good in that movie, um, Mikey and Nikki, that I watched. Well, he's he and John Cassavetes were like best friends in real life. I did not know that. I don't think I've seen him in any films yeah. outside of Princess Bride. Right. So this I don't what, know what he was also <laughs> You know what you would have seen him in, but he only has a small cameo in the um the Mupp- the Great Muppet Caper. Yeah, I think Well, actually I yeah. did watch that the other day. He just plays like a tramp that like sits on a bench with Kermit for a minute. <laughs> um peak Kermit great. behavior. All right. Well, we'll turn to Sam to talk about the book that she read for this week. So first of all, Peter Falk and Columbo are both cool. 
Columbo is cool, <laughs> Tessa. No, I mean, like, in a, like, he's not polished. He's not, like, suave. Like, he's not James Bond. Okay. Not suave, yes, but definitely cool. <laughs> I would agree with that. Okay, fine. Just saying. <laughs> diner proprietors don't offer to make you food for free if you're not cool. I really wanted that diner to be a fixture in the show. <laughs> yeah. It was really funny because it actually reminded me of the diner in the asphalt jungle. Yeah. Yeah. With the cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we what is it? We oh, it was John Wick, right? The uh, yeah, with the sushi the cat, the bar sushi with cat. The cat. Yeah. yeah, that's in the third one. I think. Uh, I, uh, yes, dude from the Iron Chef is in the third one. Yeah, that's right. Also from Marvel's Three Agents of Shield. And I don't remember, but he's like at a. He's like he has. He's the guy at the sushi counter, and his he's got the cat like, and he feeds him yes, like a little piece of fish. Yeah, that guy. That guy's in a lot of. He's the John Wick fanboy. The John Wick fanboy. Yes. Um, John Wick 3 was my favorite of the John Wicks. I have not seen the fourth one yet. I'm excited to hear what you think about 4. Anyway, Sam, tell us about 10 Steps to Nanette, A Memoir Situation by Hannah Gadsby. So Hannah Gadsby is a name a lot of folks got to know. I guess really right at the beginning of the pandemic. Nanette was like a huge deal when it came out, mm-hmm. um, which is weird because she, as she said, she's been on the comedy scene for over 10 years mm-hmm. before Nanette came out. But that was like what broke through. Right. And the thing about of it, I just haven't seen it. The thing about Nanette is that it is not a traditional comedy special on purpose. And, you know, it was received very well. She's had a follow-up called Douglas. And on the heels of Dave Chappelle's latest performance on Netflix, she was very critical of that decision, but then ultimately decided, I have a platform. It'd be stupid not to use it to counter it. So she'll have two more specials coming through Netflix. But uh, 10 Steps to Nanette is a procrastinated memoir that turned into an explanation of how the Nanette show came to be, which is just a lot. Um, I was going to say, do you want to quickly explain why Nanette is such a like groundbreaking comedy show? We, re- we rewatched it the other night. Yeah, we did. And and I do, I'll get there. I think I like, you know, this, this book assumes you've seen Nanette. I mean, I don't think you have to have. But, you know, what she does is really tries to, you know, go through that memoir. And Nanette is a culmination of this life experience in, in many ways. Um, as she talks about in the book, she particularly left stuff out because she couldn't get it down to a tight hour. Uh, Most of that stuff, especially things about autism, show up subsequently in Douglas. But uh, Hannah Gadsby grew up in Tasmania, in a less populated part of Tasmania, to make matters worse. As she points out, this is one of the most homophobic places in the world. It is one it was a place where homophobia was law longer than it was virtually anywhere else in australia and you know which is which is bad as she points out because you become homophobic when you're exposed to homophobia which is by the way how that works she also talks about growing up autistic without knowing it she talks about growing up ad with adhd without knowing it. She talks about growing up a lesbian without knowing it. And she also talks about growing up in a body that does not work very well. And, I mean, it's really trauma on trauma on trauma. She, the way that she talks about it is disarming in ways, but direct in others. 
there's a there's a section in the book where she spends multiple occasions saying, if I had a ghostwriter, we would have thought about this passage. For example, <laughs> for example, she says, I have to give you some local political context now. And this is where hiring a ghostwriter would have come in real handy. Politics is one of those things I find blood boiling and bloody boring in equal measure. And the only other topics that have that kind of effect on me are the men's rights movement and Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, this is the... this. And, You've already sold me on needing to see Nanette now, just based on that one sentence. <laughs> uh, right. And I mean, the thing is, you you if you know me, you, you know this is exactly the kind of humor that, that I appreciate. But it's not, you know, the memoir and Nanette as well are not full of wall-to-wall jokes you know she drops in in the memoir every so often a line like i'm always fine eventually i just find it incredibly difficult to cope with change which in and of itself is a statement that has a lot of weight but she talks about being sexually assaulted having to have an abortion because of that being housing insecure and you know all sorts of things and uh, she chooses not to talk about these in detail. And she says, if that bothers you, I don't care. But Appreciate that. Yeah. But she says, you know, she talks about, as she does in, in Nanette a lot, a lot about trauma and shame. Uh, talks about being forced to keep a trauma secret in order to survive. And when you don't incorporate the trauma into the version of yourself... It's not like you forget it. It doesn't go away. You just don't know how to talk about it and you can't share it. And when you can't share it, you'll never be safe because all you'll have is shame. And, you know, this is like in the context of a comedian telling us how she became funny. It's, it's very disarming uh, and uncomfortable in ways. Well, I imagine it would be uncomfortable for people who haven't had trauma well she deliberately makes parts of nanette uncomfortable like it's right. it's a show that is incredibly funny but it is about trauma and she is playing with like joke structure because she wants to like build like she has something to say about trauma in that show and she uses the humor but there are moments where she deliberately lets you like sit in your discomfort right. i mean and the thing about it is, is, and she makes it very specific. She does this in, in Douglas as well. Says, if you are a certain person listening to this, you will be made uncomfortable. The best thing you can do is just deal with that. There's a really good example in the memoir when she talks about laughing at gay people. Just making a joke about how gay people are funny sometimes. Which they are. But this was at a time when, you know, being gay was still very much illegal in parts of Australia. There was a lot of homophobia. And she recalls uh, this person named Greg, whose brother was gay. His life was hell. And his rights had been trampled on. And he cried and he wailed. And Gatsby says, he's like a white woman in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, like I said, just dropping in things, lines like, it might have been the best year of my life if I hadn't been some level of suicidal the whole time. You know, it's like, right. I, 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 you know, she really just talks about that a lot, um, about how, and then she, this is, this is the prelude to talking about the assault that she brings up in Nanette a couple of times. But, you know, just trying to put life in, in context. And it is, of course, all a buildup to talking about why Nanette was written and how it was written, which is Nanette's a great show. I love it. We watched it this week. Watching it as a white dude the first time and then as a trans woman the second time, there's a lot more there for me now. <laughs> Even though Hannah Gadsby has to point out that she is not, in fact, trans. Yeah. Although everyone likes a holiday. <laughs> Such a good she joke. Is, she's so funny. Like, I, it's, 
Douglas is a different show than Nanette because she's doing something different. Right. Nanette is about trauma and Douglas is about being, it's about autism and it's about her being uh, Are they autistic. Both, they're both on Netflix? Yes. Yes. Um, I will, okay. I will say to warn everybody, I cried throughout Nanette the first time, like the last half of Nanette. And I cried again at the end this last time. So it is a great show. Everyone should see it, but it, it's not as Sam said. It's not just laughs the entire time. Yeah, and and I think the 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 biographical stuff is really interesting. I think the best part of the book is the lead up to talking about Nanette. She talks about trying cocaine for the first time, <laughs> and how for her it had the opposite effect. Things slowed down. She could pay attention. The skies parted. And that's when she realized, rather than forming a drug habit, she should actually go get help. And that's how she got diagnosed with ADHD. (laughs) And while Ritalin was certainly not the solution to all of her problems, it was to some of them. She talks subsequently about being worried that she was a sociopath because Ritalin didn't fix everything. She talked about chasing girlfriends off. And, and, you know, not being able to dig what other people's emotions are and trying to fake it. You know, of course, these are things sociopaths do. People tried to, she talks about misdiagnosis saying, oh, you're just depressed. You're just hysterical. You just have borderline personality disorder. And then finally, after therapist shopping, she's told you do not have disordered personality. You are neurobiologically atypical. Perhaps it might be helpful to find someone who specializes in autism spectrum disorders. Which, as you know, the only thing more difficult than being diagnosed as autistic as an adult is being diagnosed as an autistic adult when you're a woman. So, she talks about that as well. And she makes a point to say... Poverty, trauma, abuse, mental illness, disability, neurological disorder. Those are the things that make life difficult. It makes it difficult to have stable employment, stable housing, to form long-lasting relationships. By the way, this is not a run-up to writing about Nanette yet. It's actually writing a show about Taylor Swift. (laughs) She loves Taylor Swift. Well, she loves Taylor Swift. Well, it's Swift. really funny that you say that because I was going to ask, is Douglas her, her evermore? Because you had said that she couldn't fit everything into Nanette. It, and that some it, of it actually very much Douglas. feels that way. I meant to say that earlier. But by the way, by the way, because she mentions Tay-Tay in, uh, is it Douglas or Nanette? It's Nanette, it's, isn't it? No, it's the beginning of Douglas because yeah. she tells us at the beginning of that show that she's going to bait her haters. Yeah. yeah, but she said, this is what she says. She says, I honestly don't believe that Tay-Tay is driven by an nefarious agenda, aside from that whole global domination thing. Ultimately, she's a young woman trying to grow up under immense public scrutiny, and that can't be easy, particularly if your persona is built on the idea of being relatable. Nor can it be easy to find your feminist feet if your whole world is being managed and shaped by a great swarm of music industry men motivated by profit. Kanye was still right, though. I want to put that on record. Beyonce was not recognized for the most iconic music video ever made, and it's embarrassing that Taylor Swift tried to position herself as a victim. To be clear, Beyonce was not recognized for her singular and incredible piece of art homecoming either, and I am so sorry for the small role I played in that. I don't know what to do about this pickle other than quietly position myself behind the fact that James Corden singing with Sir Paul McCartney in a car also won an Emmy over Beyonce in 2019. (laughs) There's a a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, There's just so much in this book to share. I... I won't read some of the quotes, but toward the end, she really talks about marriage equality and and subsequently has gotten married. Good for her. But she talks about how marriage has nothing on how to manage a broken heart, how to deal with rejection, and how to actually love. And the one thing that the gays when marriage was prohibited didn't have to worry about was having to tie all that to marriage. 
But then again, the gays ought to be able to get married. She's giving this as a marriage speech, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just talking about how, how it's, it's never about the marriage itself. It's about the ability to do something, the ability to have rights, the ability to have a better life available for children so they don't continue those generational cycles. What was what the pacing of this book? Was it because it's, it's a lot. Obviously, there's a yeah, there's a lot. Like, was it one of those where you picked it up, read a little bit, no. put it down? Like, did it, you could you just read right through it? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to read what she had to say, so that's a powerful motivator, right? But you know, she talks at the end about having trouble writing the book, and this does not surprise me. But I really like the way that she did write it and put it together. But I'll say one last thing. So the big hook of Nanette is that she's giving up comedy. Obviously, she didn't give up comedy because she has Douglas and two more specials coming out. And so, you know, what's the deal? How does that? Why is that in there? Why did you do this? Why did you lie about it? In a early draft of Nanette, an early performance, I love this is such a good story. A heckler asked what year was she talking about when she was talking about Picasso? And she stopped and she said, What? And he said he was just curious. And she says, of course you're curious. That's what a question means, you dumb cunt. Now, why did you ask that question? <laughs> and and he's like, and he gives, I mean, this is something we're dealing with today, right? Well, that was so long ago. It's irrelevant. Times change. Just tell jokes. And I have to read you what she said. It's so great. This is why the I quit thing happens in Nanette. This is the actual answer. Times have changed, have they? Well, I beg to differ. And I would say at least one in three women in the room have first-hand experience that will back me up. Now, let me tell you why you really asked your stupid little question, you stupid little man. You weren't curious. You just think you have a right to speak. You don't. Not in my house. I have the loud stick, little man. And now I'm going to tear you a new arsehole. But before I do, let me answer your stupid little question. It was 1932. Now just shut the fuck up, put your legs together, and listen to me. And she says she shouted at him for five more minutes and waiting for the audience to die down. She yelled, I quit. She said, I can't do this anymore. So that's where it came from. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, she's also offering like a pretty big critique. Like for me, it's performance, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, sure. And she talks about putting that performance together and really crafting it. And making sure the jokes in the first half aren't too funny. Right. They can't be too funny. They have to be funny enough, which I thought was a really interesting nuance to say that if you make people laugh too hard, the the drama of the second half, for lack of a better term, won't hit as hard. I You, you gotta... Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think that... And I've read... You know, I've read stuff by Steve Martin. I've read William Goldman's book about writing in Hollywood. There's your second Princess Bride reference. I was about to Tessa say, up, you're real up Princess three. Bride fans here today. Um, <laughs> it's a good movie. But, you know, co- the craft of comedy is interesting to read. This has been the most interesting one. In some ways, I think comedy is often denigrated in favor of drama because we think Mm -hmm. drama is like more serious or like takes more more craft but actually i think comedians have the harder job in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways like i think it's actually a real skill to make people laugh there's so much timing involved yeah there's timing uh as as gatsby says in douglas one of the most important things, too, in comedy is punching down. You shouldn't do it. Punching up, you should do it. And as she says, technically, making fun of Americans is punching up, but not for very much longer. 
<laughs> and then she says, but I don't speak Russian, so. <laughs> I, oh, I love her. She's so great. Yeah. I think that you just made this special go up on my watch list for sure. You, I would recommend it to anyone. And it sounds like you would recommend this book. I, I mean, I absolutely would. I, I mean, listen, if, if you like your women not yelly, you probably have some problems you need to deal with. <laughs> but if you do, Hannah Gadsby's really good at it. You know who else is good at I it, love Tessa? yelly women. The other person who's special we watched and whose book I read, Phoebe Robinson. I read her book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. I agree with that sen- with that sentiment, by the way. So I hadn't really, I knew of Phoebe Robinson. I knew she had written other books um, and I knew she was like really involved in the comedy scene. But I, and so I was, she was kind of on my periphery for a while. And this was one of the books that had made it onto my list um, over the last couple of years. She is a comedian. Um, she has one special on Max, and I can't believe we have to call it that now. But she has one special called Sorry, Harriet Tubman. Uh, I believe we call it the Zaslav special. <laughs> I think we have a month to figure it out. Uh, yeah, Z- yeah. Zaslav's <laughs> emporium of things that might be gone tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it. If Pay four more dollars for 4K. Gonna... <laughs> we riot. But she's also a writer and an actress. And in fact, I think pe- most people know her for her writing. Um, she was a staff writer for MTV's Girl Code. I- I'm just going to read some of the stuff that she's like known for. Like, But this is just scratching the surface of the things she's done. Like, I was so impressed by her resume. But she was a staff writer for MTV's Girl Code. She was a consultant on season three of Broad City. Um, she contributes to Glamour. She's been published in a bunch of different like magazines and newspapers. She- You'll appreciate this, Elise and Sam. Her blog blaria named black daria (laughs) has been featured in the (laughs) huffington post so and she's done like live versions of that as a show she also she also collaborates with jessica williams a lot um so she co-hosts a podcast called two dope queens with her and is also um in the web series woke bay um she also has a show that i've been meaning to watch for a while but i didn't make the connection that it was her um, until just now, um, called Everything's Trash, which I'm really excited about watching, especially now that I've read this book. But anyway, I could go on and on. This is actually her third book that she's written. It reads like a series of interconnected essays, particularly about lockdown, her relationship, and things she wished she knew when she started her own business in 2020, right before the lockdown. In fact, she especially bemoans the lack of black businesswomen as role models. She said the only one we have is Shonda Rhimes, and she hasn't really written any business advice. Um, and so it's <laughs> it's really interesting, like her ruminations on these things. Um, but I was surprised because she writes a lot in this book about the pandemic and lockdown, especially. And I thought at first I wouldn't want to revisit that like it's too soon. Um, but she's actually really reflective of that time in a way that I think honors a lot of the trauma that happened and also starts to kind of work through it. I think that we as a society, or at least me individually, are just now starting to kind of like realize how much that time has affected us and our relationships and like the way we view the world. Um, And she, the way she does that kind of helped me even think through some of those things I was already thinking through. I really liked especially the first chapter when she talks about like how hopeful everyone was at the beginning of 2020 and like she thought she was going to she already had this book like advanced and she thought she was going to write a very different book than the one that she ended up writing but she talks about how like she <laughs> she she talks about how hopeful everybody was and like this was going to be our year and like a lot of exciting things were happening like she just started her business and she had a new show and her her boyfriend had just moved in like after they had been like long distance for a long time and then the lockdown immediately happened <laughs> and so like it's it's wow. in but the way she thinks about it isn't just like oh look at all these like bad things about lockdown do you remember that it's like very reflective on like the way that it's affected her and her relationships while also being extremely funny. Her, but I have not seen her shows or listened to Tube Dope Queens, though I have heard of it as well. So, 
We enjoyed another special. Sorry, Harriet Tubman. What? What a... What a... I mean, like, yeah, but why? And by the way, if you're on Max and you search for Harriet Tubman, you will, in fact, find the movie Harriet (laughs) and then this special. So you could have a double feature. (laughs) I really love her voice. And I mean... I mean that like I like listening to her voice during her stand up, but I also just love her like authorial authorial tone. Her voice comes through really well in this book. It sounds like as soon as I watched her special and then started reading the book again, I was like, yes, this is the same person. Like I can hear, you know, her talking about these things. It's very accessible. It's very easy to read and very funny. She kind of talks and writes in this very like, You know, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they just sort of like take over the conversation, not in like a bad way, just in a like they take over the conversation and it just keeps like flowing like there's almost no like period breaks. It just kind of like stream of consciousness comes out of them. Are you are you saying that because I didn't read the book, are you saying the book reads like she talks in the stand up special? Yes. Okay. Yes. I was going to say, I don't know when people do that because I'm usually the person that takes over the conversation. (laughs) She uses a lot of AAVE and like, you know, like a lot of a lot of stuff like that. And she she also shortens a lot of words or like repeats a lot of them. Like she calls therapy there there at one point, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, Her boyfriend, she doesn't use his name, but she refers to him both in the book and in the special as British Bay cough because he's British. <laughs> and so uh, one of the things that she talks about both in the book and the, and the uh, special is how awkward it is to watch um, black trauma movies with uh, your white boyfriend. <laughs> um, and like, you know, it's just, it's like, she's like, you know, I'm like, don't touch me. And he's like, do you want a free iPhone? Which I just thought was, was really great. <laughs> But, like, you know, working through, like, what does that relationship mean, you know, when they were all long distance and then suddenly they were trapped in an apartment together, you know, for months on end. And, you know, some of the cultural differences and, you know, the ways in which, you know, she thought, like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be able to, like, talk to him about all his flaws as a person. And she's like, but then he, like, turned it around on me and turns out I have flaws as a person. You know, like, it's just it's a really interesting, very honest, like, look kind of at that portion of life. But there's other stuff in it too. Like she talks, she has like a whole list of rules for business. And my favorite one is the printer will never ever be used for uh, work purposes. It's always going to be in color and it's always going to be your employees printing out Dear Evan Hansen tickets. And you're not going to say a word about it. Like you're just going to let them do that because that is part of the job. So yeah, it's, it's very funny. She's obviously, if you haven't caught on by now, she's black and she speaks from an experience that I don't always understand, which is good. Like people should be reading people's experience that they don't necessarily understand all the time. Um, Although I would like to point out that she was born in 84. So she's one of Elise's people, one of the the elder millennials. There are a lot of U2 references. She is obsessed with U2. And apparently, I do need to read this. Book. And apparently, <laughs> makes her boyfriend watch fan compilations of U two concerts, like they're like two hours long on YouTube. So, like you oh know, God. there's a lot that of poor man. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff like that. Well, he's British. He has a lot of things he, to be yeah, upset he's, about he's already. British. I was just thinking that we should start calling Lazi um, British Bake Off. British Bake Off. Yeah, I'm in favor <laughs> of this. But she also she makes a lot of pop culture references and especially even like unexpected ones like the page I was just reading says cut to week two of our core short for quarantine. And my boyfriend was starting to look like J. Jonah Jameson, the editor in chief of the Daily Bugle, because all my ignorance caused gray streaks on the side of his head. (laughs) And like (laughs) just picking picturing J.K. Simmons. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But British. But my my other favorite, too, is that uh, because I feel like anyone who has lived together, much less enjoyed pop culture together, will recognize this experience. Stop me, Sam, when you when you realize that we've had this conversation before. 
Uh, so, yep, there's no way around it. I can be irritating. Case in point, Bake Off is not allowed to watch any TV series by himself, mm-hmm. old or new, if there's even a hint of suggestion that I might one day be interested mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. Please enjoy. Phoebe being on her bullshit, a play. Bake Off sits on the couch, enjoying his quiet British life without my loud American voice blaring in his ear as he watches TV. I see him happy for five minutes and think to myself, well, he had a good run. You're watching the newest season of Ozark. Interesting. Bake Off. Huh? Oh, yeah. The show premiered before we started dating. So, yeah, I've been watching it. Me. I guess that tracks. Ten days later, Bake Off has his headphones in watching TV. Lol. Why is he wearing headphones in this apartment? He's trying to block me out? I had a Ricola today because I was bored. My vocal pipes are ready. Babe. 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 He removes his headphones. Is that the new season of The Walking Dead? I, there are 2.8 hot dudes in it. Why didn't you tell me so I could start watching the show from the beginning and catch Who's up before the, the new point season eight started? Hot dude? Don't know. To continue the uh, the Walking Dead portion of this, Bake Off <laughs> plays a clip of a zombie getting shanked in the head and I dry heave over his cup of tea. <laughs> Another week passes. We're in bed scrolling Netflix trying to find something to watch. Bake Off, what about The Witcher? Me, eh, that's just white people in wigs doing goofy-ish. Bake Off. That's literally what Mrs. Doubtfire is, and you love that movie. I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen anybody compare The Witcher to Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> although, I do appreciate. Although, Robin Williams is The Witcher. I could see it. Could I would you? definitely watch that show. <laughs> could you? Better than Liam Hemsworth. <laughs> oh. I know Phoebe's around my age because she uses the word ish. Like, that is a word that has been in my vocabulary for 30 years. I feel, Elise, like you would really like this book because she's just, like, slightly, like you are to me, like, she's just slightly older than me, but she has, like, more connection to that pop culture than I do. Um, Right. So, like, I can read it and enjoy it, but there are definitely pop culture references I don't get that I think you probably would. Right. That's kind of um, my experience. Do you know the writer um, Samantha Irby at all? Um, she's also a, a black woman, and she she's she re- references so many. She's a little older than me, but she references like so many pop culture things in her writing, and it's always a treat for me. Like she went on about Fiona Apple in one of her books, and like I love Fiona Apple, but it just was like it added so much to like be able to understand a lot of the reference. I didn't understand all of them, but like this sounds very similar to that. Yeah. And she obviously talks about racism, but it's more about like the racism that happens in like daily interactions with people like microaggressions. She talks about the ways in which Americans tend to fetishize Africa or like going to the continent of Africa and like, you know, it's either Wakanda or it's like an AIDS riddled, you know, like desert um, Mm -hmm. and not really thinking about the people who live there. But she said she's like, I know all of that. And yet visiting Africa was one of the like most illuminating experiences of my life because suddenly I was in a place where black wasn't the other like everyone around me was black and she's like that just like opened up like some synapses in my brain and like you know she's like i'll never forget that so you know she she's very interesting in the fact that she's very funny but she is she's willing to reflect on her experiences both the ones that i share and the ones that i don't share in ways that are really interesting and really eye-opening and I don't know, like, it's one of those things where this book made me laugh a lot, but it also made me, like, do... It's not even just that it made me think. It just made me do some, like, emotional, like, work through some things that I'd been thinking about right. for a while. The the stand-up special, one of the things that... Uh, I We didn't talk about this, but I noticed it, and it made me feel uh, a certain way about her comedy was... So, you know, your typical stand-up special... That's on Max or Netflix <laughs> or whatever, you know, or are done in these bigger places, right? Bigger halls and theaters and such. And uh, the Sydney Opera House for uh, Douglas, I believe. But uh, sorry, Harriet Tubman is it's in a very small space. And the stage actually looks more like 
It looks more like fancy brunch party decor with all the flowers and stuff. Yeah. Than it does stand up comedy. And it really did. I think it really did put you in that place of this could have been a brunch. Yes, this person's going to take over the the um, conversation. But, you know, as far as entering it as... And, and she does mildly roast the not black people in the audience. Just mildly. It's not too bad. But it's one of those things it's where it's sure. like, it's it's a really fun conversation to be a part of and i could i could imagine really you know like going to brunch and hearing this person talk knowing i would be murdered at some point via comedy right yeah <laughs> you know I, yeah. And, and i i've had several experiences you know with that in my life i'm fine with it i can be the butt of a joke of course you know thinking about it a little differently as a white woman <laughs> might not make it out alive but that's just the price of admission <laughs> but it felt like, and it seems like to me that the book f- sounds like it's that same level of closeness. Yeah, it, it it really, again, I it really reminds me the two things are very obviously connected. And there is like that, that moment. Uh, I will say, uh, before I finish off, um, I am going to read her two other books on the list. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I would really recommend both this book and her special but I thought that all of us would probably appreciate this, but especially Elise, who I know works remotely a lot. One of her, because her whole list of business advice is what Warren Buffett should have told you, like number one through 11. And number 11 is this could have been an email. And she says, but worse than the people who want to use Zoom as a default means of communication are the tricks who at the last minute decide a scheduled conference call should now be a video conference call. Wait a damn minute. Why are people calling audibles at the last minute as if we are all we all dressed like it's day two of our periods? Even if you can't have a period or never had a period, you're dressing like your uterine lining has just finished a ropes course, a.k.a. you look like a fucking mess. The audacity to assume folks have washed their face that day, taken a shower, brushed their teeth, put on an outfit. I ain't wasting my cute clothes just so I can sit at my makeshift desk, a.k.a. the dining room table and work. This is athleisure and sweatpants household until further notice. So stop it with the Zoom surprise meetings. You can't do that to people, especially black women like me, because now I'm pulling a muscle diving for a wig so I can put it on my head before I click join with video and have to spend the rest of my day icy hotting my back. So in the future, when you want to set a Zoom, ask yourself, could this be an email? And if the answer is yes, then bitch, clickety-clack, click-click on your keyboard like a Delta Airlines employee trying to rebook you on a flight and keep it moving. <laughs> yes. That, that is her, basically, in a nutshell, and I, I love it. I don't have the same hair issue, but I usually just put a, I just put a hat on when, when that happens. Actually, I wear my Columbo uh, baseball hat. I love that. There we go. Pulling it full circle back to the beginning. All right. Uh, before we close out today, uh, let's talk about the romance sub challenge, which I have done very little on. I'm planning on catching up here soon. But Elise, tell us what you read for the romance sub challenge this month. I think I've um, I don't even think it was this month, but I think I've read one one book for this sub challenge so far. It was the impossible love prompt. It was fun because I I went in a different direction from the impossible love suggestions, which were very much like, oh, maybe people of different species, you know. My impossible love was impossible because of, I guess, social norms. The book is called Mistakes Were Made by Meryl Wilsner. Um, Cassie is a college senior, and she is at a bar, and she picks up a hot older lady, and... They have a really nice time in the car on the street. (laughs) And then the next day, her best, her like one of her newer friends, who's like a freshman, invites her to brunch with her mother, who's in for family weekend. And oops, the woman she slept with is her friend's mom. Drama. And so it's impossible. (laughs) Yeah, it's impossible. This all happens in like the first two chapters. And it's just fuck what do we do now um so they obviously like pretend that they've never met before but like 
It's just trying to keep the secret, but also being intrigued by that person and like maybe not wanting to stop seeing them. So it's it's a lot of that. Um but it was really it was really sweet and I loved all of the characters. I found there was some um class differences that did not get addressed at all that got completely washed over so this is not the kind of book where it's gonna go into like anything deep because the the family is like pretty well off and cassie um is not in contact with her mom and does not have a lot of money and was mostly raised by her best friend's parents um so they have very different home lives but like it doesn't really they kind of gloss over it a little bit um, but it was just like a hopeful, sweet book, and everyone in it was lovely. And like everyone in it, for the most part, was queer as well. That's always fun and exciting. You know, we love a good queer romance. Sam, did you read anything for the Romance Sub Challenge this month? No. <laughs> we have been busy. However, Melissa did, and she sent in her summary. She said she did read a Regency romance bonus challenge, Immortality, A Love Story. It was just as fun as the first book, but I would call it Romance Light, as that is not the main focus. It also does some alternative history stuff that I am sure is even more fun for for folks more familiar with the true stories. I'm ready for the third if we get one. So this is uh, the sequel to Dana Schwartz's novel Anatomy. And it's an accidental sequel. And I know she's been talking about it as a duology. So duologies are the new trilogies. Yeah. And so I I think maybe that'll be but 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 I think only Dana Schwartz knows how much her love for Mary Shelley, how deep it runs. <laughs> so whether or not there will be more depths to plumb in the Frankenstein of it all. I guess we'll see. That sounds so I, gross. I am context. looking forward to reading that one, though. Yeah. yeah. I am excited to read the first one. It's good. I haven't read it. I've heard it's very good from multiple people. I did want to say very, very quickly before we close out that uh, as some of us are hoping... In the latter part of April, which by the time you hear this will have pretty much already happened, to read some more romance. It is never too early to start making good life choices that will put you in a place to make you ready when the Hugo Award nominees drop at some point in May. At what point? I don't know. The Hugo Awards are associated with Worldcon, which this year are taking place in China. So I I don't know what's going on. All I know is nominees end at the end of April. So presumably, our Hugo Awards sub-challenge will begin at some point in May and will culminate with the resident Hugo Awards correspondent Losbert in what September October it's some I think point it's, September. it's late September because I think the awards are actually pushed all the way last to year we actually recorded and released the episode in August but it's been pushed back because right. it's in China this year I guess so it's yeah. who knows we're, we're doing Hugo's watch we'll let you know when we know so it's gonna be fun it's gonna be fun there's gonna be a whole new slew of uh, sub challenges to read and you know hugo awards are great because we've got novels for adults we've got young adult novels we've got novelettes we've got non-fiction we've got short stories we've got novellas we've got graphic novels all of these things will be incorporated into the sub challenge some way or another how i don't know ask me later <laughs> is TV it later TV. yet it is TV. not later. All right. So thank you for coming on, Elise, to talk about your book for the book challenge. I'm excited to hear more about what you read in future episodes. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This was great. Always glad to have you on. 
So next time, we have a music episode with Jarrett. This time, we are doing a deep dive on the albums of Bjork. And uh, is that how you say her name? I, I well, feel like Jarrett is okay. already correcting me. I say Bjork. But Jarrett, who is correct, pronounces it more like Bjork. Bjork? Bjork. Yes. I pronounce it like Although, Sam, but I also knew that it was not correct and that Jarrett had the correct pronunciation. Well, it's like Tove I mean, Low and Tuvalu. Listen. Yeah, but I've been saying too M- lately. MTV betrayed us. That is not my fault. It really did. It's just, listen, it's just human behavior. Okay? It's just <laughs> what we do when we hear it called something. And that's just, that's just, that's just the way it is, man. My my heart, all is full of love for Bjork. Or Bjork, doesn't matter. <laughs> Jarrett is also creating, uh, cultivating a mm-hmm. playlist. So I will drop that link um, when the when this Very episode comes out, so you can listen to that prior to our episode with Jarrett. All right, where can people find us, Elise? Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at chicken double underscore tendi. That's T E N D I. And you can find my podcast, Pod Wraiths, at P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S on Twitter and Instagram and wherever you find your podcasts. Sam, where can people find you? Uh, by the way, I apologize for not including It's Oh So Quiet in my Bjork joke song title, Don't Blow a Fuse. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. And you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Og's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. We'd like to know your thoughts on any of the books we've talked about today or what you've been reading. Be sure to join Momble's 2023 Reading Challenge on Storygraph. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can also find the link to our Discord community in the show notes. You can email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review, or both, our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>